Hey guys, Otaku Nate here. I just wanted to preface this episode by saying that we are going to be spoiling pretty much the entirety of Full Metal Panic Second Raid and Full Metal Panic Invisible Victory. So if you haven't seen either show, turn off this podcast now and watch the shows before listening. If you're not afraid of spoilers then, well, on with the show. This is the Otaku Nate Show, Episode 21, The Full Metal Panic Retrospective, Part 2, End of Day by Day. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show, the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me once again is Tim the Otaku Jock. Evening, all. And Jordan. Hello, good to be back. And for this episode, we continue on with our Full Metal Panic retrospective, looking at the other two seasons of Full Metal Panic. Full Metal Panic the Second Raid, and Full Metal Panic Invisible Victory. And since we're doing this chronologically, we're going to start with the Second Raid. The Second Raid came out in 2006 by KyoAni. Like the first season, it was directed by Yasuhiro Takamoto, longtime stalwart of KyoAni, directed a few shows of note. Probably his most famous work is Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid, Tragically, he was one of many killed in the KyoAni arson attack of 2019. As for writers, while we do have Fumihiko Shimo returning to write the screenplay, the main writer for this season is the show's creator, Shoji Gato himself. And he will return to write Invisible Victory when we cross that bridge. So the premise of the second raid is that two months after the events of the final arc of the first season, Mithril is in turmoil, and they learn that they've been infiltrated by an, by an evil organization called Amalgam, who has the technology that can counter their ESCs. Fearing this new threat, they reorganize their chain of command. One of these involves our hero, Sosuke Sagara, who receives a letter from Mithril saying that he is being taken off the job of watching our main heroine, Kaname Chidori, and they do state that somebody will be in his place to watch over Kaname, but Sosuke is being taken far away from the one girl he truly knows, and Kaname is left alone to fend for herself. So, with that said, did any of you follow the second raid when it was coming out during the days of fan subs, because I did not, and I didn't know that the second raid was even a thing until I saw that it was announced in, I think it was either New Type USA or Anime Insider. I was not yet on uh, the fan sub train at the time that second raid was come out. It was actually literally just before, because I think if I'm not mistaken uh, about uh, Kiwani's, uh show production timeline, uh, wasn't the show right after uh, Second Raid, uh, Haruhi Suzumiya? Uh, this was actually before Haruhi Suzumiya. Okay, but that's exactly what I meant, is that Haruhi came right after this, is what I'm saying. Yeah. 
Yeah, that that was the first series that I really kind of uh, took a step into, into uh, watching via fan subs. So literally, this show was like just a couple of months before I started on the fan sub train. Jordan, did you follow this? Um, no, actually, it came. Uh, I didn't learn about Second Raid until about years later, kind of around the same time frame I got in the Full Metal Panic. So now, unfortunately, I wasn't there for the fan translations. Okay. Because I wasn't aware of it, but I know that there was some concern over the English dubbing. Because unlike the first two seasons, which were released by ADV, the second raid was licensed and released by Funimation. And this isn't the first time that a title that was previously owned by ADV fell into the hands of another company. The big example being Sayuki, which was published by Densu, who had a stake in Pioneer, who later became Genion. It goes a little further than that, because if I'm not mistaken, this was released by Funimation, yes, but I believe that this was also uh, one of the original licenses for Katakawa USA. That is correct, and I think Funimation had a partnership with them. I didn't I believe, check. Uh, Katakawa had a had a partnership with uh, several anime distribution companies because they, they had some of their stuff released by Funimation, some of their stuff released by Bandai Entertainment. But yeah, this was the first one that I remember. This and Haruhi were the first two that I remember under the Katakawa USA uh, banner. And, and really, I, gotta, I have to say this much. Uh, the release that they did... For uh, second rate, I think is that is is tremendous. But to finish my thought, the reason I brought that up was Sayuki being licensed by Genion meant that they changed dubbing studios. So production was shifted away from ADV Studios in Houston over to Bang Zoom in California, and thus we got an all new voice cast for that. But now the old crew is back to dubbing Sayuki since the series has shifted over to Sentai. And we are still getting Sayuki series in 2022. Who'd have thunk it? What a time to be alive. I mean, they're making new seasons of Icky Tosin for crying out loud. <laughs> uh, we are in a very strange timeline. If Icky Tosin could come back with what little relevance it had. I mean, they're bringing back a, a rebooted version of Urusei Yatsura for God's sakes this year. Like, what is even this timeline at this point? This is indeed a disturbing universe. <laughs> Thankfully, though, that wasn't the case with this dub as Funimation, and I'm not aware of the specifics of what happened, they were able to use pretty much all of the original ADV cast. This isn't going to be like an Invisible Victory, which is a 100% Funimation dub. You'll see all the ADV regulars in the cast for the credits of the second raid. Yes, and I think that as well, you're also still talking about, it's probably it was probably a little easier logistical for them, because yeah, it's still a bit of a hike from Houston uh, to Dallas from as far as I understand, but at the same time, it's not like going from Houston to LA. Or Houston to New Jersey. That is true. Yeah. So with the premise out of the way, and I think we'll get into our impressions once we talk to the story... What did you think of the animation? Because KyoAni is a studio that isn't really known for doing action in this one. Because I thought the animation looked fine. I mean, there's some really jank CGI in there with the helicopters 
Because those helicopters, even for 2006 standards, do not look good. I mean, I, I think I kind of uh, echo your sentiments right there. Like, it's perfectly fine, but it's also, yeah, there's nothing that really necessarily just jumps out at you as kind of like a wow uh, uh, kind of feeling right there. I, I mean, th some good sequences to be sure, and hey, you brought up the helicopters. I mean, that's mid-2000s CG, for heaven's sakes. But uh, overall, yeah, my, my sentiments echo yours, Nate. I would say rock solid, nothing overly spectacular, but it gets the job done. Yeah, I'd have to say I'm in the same boat. It's it's good. Uh, the CG definitely uh, definitely mid two thousands without a doubt. But um, no, no, there are actually some really good action scenes that actually kind of surprised me this time around. It was uh, it was a minor step up from uh, season one, in my opinion. The characters though look a lot better, and I did notice differences. Um. I will say, if you're going to buy this on home video, get the Blu-rays, because I own the single discs, and this was from a time when Funimation was owned by Navarre, and good lord, the masters on some of those DVDs, oh my goodness. Oh, I forgot about that, yeah, jeez, yeah, that's a name I haven't heard in a minute. Because the pictures on, and this isn't just for uh, the second raid either, if you go and like watch some of Funimation singles from that time period, the picture looks like really washed out and over bright in some places. And I feel like this was done intentionally to prevent reverse importation. So I am told, but that's getting into conspiracy territory. I mean, even if that was, that would have been something that would have been dictated by, uh, by the Japanese and not done. I think intentionally by the American company, at least that's what I would think. So if you watch it online or buy the newest Blu-ray of Second Raid, if you can find it, you're not really going to experience those problems. I love those Funimation singles, but I will admit the mastering on them is not great. I think even I can agree on that. Even playing it on my PS4 uh, Blu-ray player, it, uh, it, it does... I, I guess maybe I just... I don't have the same eye for uh, visual quality that some people have. Uh, who are real experts in this, so maybe that's why maybe I didn't notice it as uh, quickly as I did. Yeah, I, I watched it via streaming, so I can't really commentate on the kind of the quality or the difference in quality. Mm-hmm. Now, for the soundtrack. Once again, we have Toshihiko Sahashi doing the music, and some of the music in Second Raid is recycled from the original series, but I can say that the new tracks that we get are pretty damn good. Yeah, I agree. I noticed the background music this time around. Uh, for me, I picked up on the background music here and there, but it's just still missing that one track where I'm just like, hey, this is pretty good. It was serviceable, but I don't think it was necessarily anything to write home about. Nowhere near the level of drive you'd get on something like a Sawano or a Kaijura soundtrack, but it does the job. As I said, the score this time around a little more memorable, but still not quite at the level of, say, something like a Victory Gundam or my personal favorite soundtrack of all time, Giant Robo. But Giant Robo's soundtrack is special, given that, you know, it's a seven-volume epic. One complaint I do have, though, I don't like the opening for Second Raid. It's funny that this show just does not seem... Uh, to have any luck with uh, <laughs> with opening songs. 
Because usually when you hear the second opening to a show, it's usually a progression to sort of show that the show is getting more mature, that it's getting darker, the scale is expanding. It's the difference between Bleach's first opening, Asterisk by Orange Rage, which is a fun little Japanese funk rock song, and D-Techno Life, the second opening, which is this pounding driving rock song. Yeah, I just... <laughs> Full Metal Panic really just can't catch a break when it comes to these openings, at least until, in my opinion, Invisible Victory, but oh, I'll wait to commentate on that. I like the opening to the first series, but everything after that, save for Invisible Victory, is just bleh. Yeah, they're uh, forgettable, to uh, put it nicely. If I were to make a bottom 10 anime openings list, I'd say that this would be up there... But as I said, in terms of, like, bad anime openings, nothing beats Witchblade's second opening. That... That second opening, man, is just... Oof. You know, I I might sound like a jerk for saying this, but I wouldn't even put it on my top ten worst openings because I don't even remember it. (sighs) At least with Witchblade, like, there's a connection where I'm like, oh, man. Or, like, Zombie Loan's opening where it's like, yeah, this is pretty, uh, crap tier. Yikes. Or, and I'm gonna get murdered for this, the opening to Cash Earn's Sins, which, compared to Cash Earn's other two openings, not only doesn't really fit with Cash Earn, but it doesn't fit with the show itself. It's been forever since I saw a few episodes of that, so I can't comment on that. Anyway, we've gone off track. Time to bore you with the voice acting. I figured that if I went over every new character we'd be here all day so i'm just gonna go over the ones that i think are important the new recruit to mithril belfangen Clouseau, is voiced by rikia koriyama he is kiritsugu emiya in the fate series my favorite character in hajime no ippo mamoru takamura he is perugius dola in mushoku tensei yukichi fukuzawa in bungo stray dogs Klaus von Reinhertz in Blood Blockade Battlefront. And for all you Yakuza fans, he's Taiga Saijima. Okay, so I knew I recognized that voice, and as a Fate fan, it was driving me crazy to not be able to peg where I heard it. Admiral Boda is played by Kazuhiko Kishino. His only notable roles being King Kaniku in Kanikuman, Ivan Passeroff in Gundam 0083, and Urza Gurney in Captain Future. Bin Shibata plays Hunter. He is Broly in Dragon Ball Z, Ken Nakajima in You're Under Arrest, Paptimus Shiroko in Zeta Gundam, and for all you people who watched it on Netflix, Goki Shibukawa in Baki. One person I forgot to mention last time around, Admiral Mardukas is played by Tomomichi Nishimura. He is Yuichi Tachibana in Initial D, Jorge Sautome in Yu Yu Hakusho, Anzai Sensei in Slam Dunk, and both Akuma and M. Bison in Street Fighter. Wow. Man, no wonder Sosuke was uh, nervous around him in uh, Fumofu. (laughs) Right. Lastly, a little bit of uh, gender confusion with the roles, which we'll talk about in the dub. Wraith, the spy for Mithril, is played by Saika Ohara, most famous for being Urza Scarlet in Fairy Tale, Millie Ashford in Code Geass, Yuko Ichihara in Holic, Salvaria Bless in Valkyria Chronicles, 
And continuing her being a badass soldier, she's Valmet in Jormungand. Hey guys, Nate here. I just want to clarify what I meant when I said gender confusion. Wraith's gender is kept ambiguous through most of the second raid, at least up until the very end, where, mild spoiler, but Wraith is indeed a woman. Hence why, on the Japanese side, she's voiced by Saiga Ohara, using a voice modifier to make her voice sound deeper and more masculine. In the dub, however, Wraith is voiced by Chris Ayers, also using a voice modifier to make his voice sound deeper and mysterious. My guess is that ADV just didn't know that Wraith is indeed a woman, hence why they made this casting choice, which, eh, doesn't bother me all that much, I just wanted to clarify that. For the villains, Leonard Testarossa is played by Daisuke Namikawa. Of all the places he got his start, he's Alfred in Gundam 0080. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. And it's not the only Gundam thing he's been in, he's Michael Trinity in Gundam 00, and Ride Marcinus in Gundam Unicorn. He's also Hisoka in Hunter x Hunter 2011, Ukiora in Bleach, Toru Oikawa in Haikyuu, Rock in Black Lagoon, <laughs> Yu Narukami, or Protagonist, in Persona 4, and for all you Lupin fans, he is the current voice of Goemon Ishikawa. Jeez, talk about a track record. No kidding. <laughs> Speaking of modern Lupin voices, the twin assassins, the youngest, Jia Yu Lan, is played by Miyuki Sawashiro, the current voice of Fujiko, she is also Pachit Carrot in Digi Carrot. I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation on this one. Mint Blanc Maha in Galaxy Angel. Shinku in Rosen Maiden. Kurapika in Hunter x Hunter 2011. Suruga Kanbaru in the Monogatari series. Jun Sasada in Natsumi's Book of Friends. Kirari Momobami in Kakegurui. Shion in Psycho Pass. And Elizabeth in Persona 3. That uh, that took a that took a little bit uh, for you to get out, didn't it? <laughs> oh my God! If we mentioned all of her famous roles, we'd be here all day. I get you. <laughs> her older sister, Jia Yufan, is played by Emmy Shinohara, most famous for being Sailor Jupiter. Also quite timely, she is Biko in Project Aiko, Precia in Magic Knight Ray Earth, and she was apparently a favorite of Yoshiaki Kawajiri because she is. Remy Masuda in Cyber City Oedo, Kagero in Ninja Scroll, and Charlotte Elborn in Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust. And last but not least, we've got Hochu Otsuka as Gates, Jiraiya in Naruto, Hans von Zetur in Saga of Tanya the Evil, Haruko in That Time I Got Reincarnated as a Slime, Haruya Shiki in Durarara, he is Beck Gold in The Big O, Shiro Sanada in Yamato 2199, and most importantly, Biscuit Oliva in Baki. On the side of the dub, there's not really much for me to comment on. Pretty much everybody from the first reprises their roles. Uh, some newcomers to the cast include Josh Grayley, who plays Borda. The twin assailants, Jia Yu Fan and Jia Yu Lan, are played by Christine Outen and Kira Vincent Davis, respectively. Cluso is voiced by James Reed Faulkner, who, outside of this role, has not really done too much of note. And John Swayze, who absolutely kills it as Mr. Gates. 
Sadly, this will be one of the last appearances for Mike Kleinhens as Sergeant Kalanen, as shortly after this dub finished recording, he passed away in 2008 after a heart attack. Ah, mm. oh, man. But other than that, it's a uh, typical quality of the uh, previous two dubs. Not much to comment on. Yeah, like, it's like if you were already on board with the dub uh, for the first two seasons, not much has changed, and, you know, that's uh, that's the good thing right there. Yep, no, definitely very consistent from season one. So, without giving too much away, what were your impressions of Second Raid, and how do you feel about it now? Because I have my own thoughts about it. When I initially started watching Second Raid, I think I had gone into it, actually, believe it or not, I had actually gone into it, I think, even before I had finished watching uh, the first series, if you can believe that. But, you know, I just watched it, and... I was enjoying it, but then I hit a point like I do with a lot of uh, shows where I just kind of, you know, I pause and then I just lose track of it for a little while. And then by the time I come back to it, I'm just like, well, I should probably start this over again now, shouldn't I? Which, you know, at the very least, with it being, what is it, 12 or 13 episodes? 13 episodes. It's not as much of a time sink as, say, the, as, say, the first series was. Yeah, I, I remember enjoying it. When I initially saw it, I went back and I watched it in full of a few years later, and I enjoyed it. I rewatching it for this one, it really does feel like there are good moments here, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if everything completely works, and I'm not saying that uh, to say that I dislike it by any means. I just think that this maybe could have been a little bit more than it was. Jordan, so my experience watching Second Raid, it's like. If you went to the game store, and you went to your favorite video game franchise, and it was rated T, and then you go buy the sequel game, and it's rated M. <laughs> this, this is a much darker tale than I remember, and then what from I expected. Uh, it goes to certain avenues I was not completely expecting. I, I will agree with you there. This definitely... That was the one thing I will say about it, is that it upped the violence <laughs> considerably, and I was a little bit surprised at that. Yeah, I mean, there was just some some brutal kills found in here, not to just mention, especially if you watch it dub, the profanity used from Gates is just so over the top. <laughs> I think we can get into that in the spoiler section, but like, did you enjoy it? That's what oh, I want yes. to know. Yes, I was very much on board. Okay, here's my take on it. Because I did my homework for Second Raid, and I read the two books that this was based on, which is why I called the episode End of Day by Day. Because the Second Raid spans two novels, both of which are called End of Day by Day, Part 1 and Part 2. Shoji Gato said that these two novels were basically kind of a calm before the storm. That the Full Metal Panic series was starting to rev up into a more full-blown military series, as opposed to the part mecha, part high school comedy series that it is known as. And in fact, the first four episodes, which are all filler, is the last time Full Metal Panic will dip its toes into the waters of comedy. I can believe that, yeah. Yep, he, uh... <laughs> He definitely set out for what he was going for. 
I feel that the second raid feels like it's more of a transitional series, if anything, which isn't bad, as I still enjoyed it, but of the four Full Metal Panic series, this is the one that's fallen in my eyes. And I could see that uh, initially. And again, I don't have the uh, I don't have the experience reading the books as uh, you do. But I mean, I would probably kind of say the same. But then again, I say that uh, having not yet watched Invisible Victory, the anime is fairly faithful to the books outside of those first four episodes, which I have my own thoughts on. But they do make a few changes. Namely regarding Mr. Gates and the twin Chinese assassins. But overall, not a bad show. I still enjoy it, and I do recommend it if you liked the first two Full Metal Panic series. Yeah, uh, I would definitely recommend this to people that enjoy a more darker storyline. That's kind of where I fell more in line with it, and I actually started to like this more than the first season. No, I was gonna say, you know, I, I uh, definitely didn't think that it had it uh, fell because it was dark. Let me be a hundred percent clear about that. And I just thought it was also just a tighter story. Like the pacing was just much better than what season one laid out. All right, but overall, I think we're ready to get into some spoilers. In spite of some of the problems that I have with it. Namely that I kind of wish it did a little more, and, and not to spoil too much, but the ending feels like it's kind of a rush job. Though oh, that... yeah, definitely. I agree. But other than that, it's consistent, but Invisible Victory blows it out of the water. But I shan't spoil it, or I will ruin the next part of this retrospective. But anyway, <laughs> let's get into spoiler territory. So the first four episodes of the anime are filler, and I think that's to the show's detriment. It does set up the conflict, but at the same time, these were four episodes that could have been much better spent. I don't know why they couldn't have just ignored these first four episodes, because the sixth book, Dancing Very Merry Christmas, doesn't get an adaptation even though there was official art made for it. That's interesting. That's a bit odd. I've actually started reading the sixth book, and I can basically sum it up like this. <clears throat> Sosuke Sagara is under siege. Oh, boy. <laughs> basically, it does the class trip from the first book, and it goes just as well. Only this time, it's a cruise ship that gets held hostage by Amalgam. Oh, snap. <laughs> but these first four episodes don't really establish much. It's just, you know, hey, we're fighting a war in Hong Kong, and then Sosuke has to go back to Japan, but then he goes back to Hong Kong anyway. So... Yeah, it's, it's very much just... You know, resetting the table. It's almost like it's almost like one of those uh, uh, season premiere episodes of uh, of uh, My Hero Academia, where they uh, reintroduce every single character uh, and their quirk in what is a basically a throwaway episode. I get the need for it, considering that some time had passed, but this was only one year later. They could have they could have uh, compacted some of those fillers. Like maybe instead of four, it could have been just two. I agree with that. Hey, man, gotta reach that 12-episode quota somehow. 
<laughs> I guess. <laughs> Actually, I'm wrong. It was 13 episodes. Okay. But still, well, <sighs> it feels like it could have been time better spent. I mean, we do get one episode that feels like it was a leftover from Fumofu, where Sosuke takes over the school's communications antenna. Oh, jeez. Yeah, it's just... Yeah, kind of looking back, it was a little bit of a... They didn't really stick the landing all too well, the transition. Because it went from just, oh, hey, it's more full mill pack, to, holy shit, what am I watching? Yeah, it does. I, I think... I, I, I don't think it's as jarring as something like... You're Mini lying, Wars. April. I, <laughs> or, <laughs> uh, I was going to say Trigun myself, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but at the same time, yeah, I, I don't disagree that maybe it's not the best. Like, it's not terrible. The transition itself, it doesn't feel like it's such a left turn because, you know, you're dealing with, you're dealing with mechas and international uh, conflicts. I mean, I think there's an expectation that things are going to get real at some point. Yeah, it feels like it's meant to reacquaint the audience. But, you know, if you're watching the streaming or on home video and you've just seen the events of what took place... Right. You don't need these episodes. These could have easily been skipped over in favor of adapting that sixth book. But once we do get into the story, that's where things start to pick up a little. Because the moment when Sosuke finds out that he's no longer serving under Kaname, and he opens his apartment door calling out for Wraith, like you can sense the anger within him, even though he doesn't show it that much. I mean, no, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that that's what I think that this is one of the best uh, things about it because I think for as much as we always have looked at Sosuke as being the ever serious uh, soldier boy, I mean, this is really I think probably maybe some of his best characterization in the series. No two ways. I was gonna say I definitely agree. This season seemed like it was the just the time where Sosuke went from trope to actual character. That moment is the first of many humanizing moments within the series. And any of the dramatic moments, and I think this can be pinned on the fact that it's Kyo-Ani, really land. Oh yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Something I forgot to mention about Wraith is we don't really know what their deal is. Like, we know they're a spy, but... We don't really see who they truly are until the very end of the anime. And I'm using the they because this is a case where the actors are the opposite sex in the dub and sub. On the Japanese side, they're voiced by Saika Ohara. On the dub side, they're voiced by Chris Ayers using a voice modulator. We do find out at the end of the show that Wraith is indeed a woman. Like, that that black-haired woman you see at the end with the sniper rifle, that's Wraith. Okay, fair enough. I do not know who voices her, though. Outside of the suit, I mean. But I like the presence of Wraith as this unseen presence. Yeah, I mean, it gave... so It was totally justifiable for Sosuke to freak out the way he did. Yeah, and 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 what and wasn't it established in there that Wraith had been kind of keeping an eye on things pretty much since pretty much since word go uh, once they got to Japan? Yes, this is touched on in the books. Okay, that Wraith was there to monitor the situation for both Sosuke 
and Kaname and report it back to Mithril. Also, I feel that in terms of talking about new characters, we gotta talk about Clouseau. I like Clouseau. Uh, at first I didn't like him, and then episode 13 gave him a lot more character, and then I immediately started to like him. Having read the books, he starts out as being unlikable, but that's sort of the point. Oh, no, I totally understand it. He was just, just a total dick. And he's supposed to be a dick, because if you look at the previous dynamics of the major characters in Mithril, it was very much a family or kind of fraternity dynamic. Sosuke is, you know, your stoic soldier boy. Kurtz is pretty much your frat boy womanizer. Mao is the hot-blooded, drunkard female pilot. Tessa is our young female captain who's just there to look cute. And Kalanin and Mardukas are meant to be the adult figures in the room. Clouseau breaks that dynamic, because he's arguably even more serious a soldier than Sosuke. I could definitely see that. Yeah. And in the books, especially because in the part I'm up to in Dancing Very Merry Christmas, he clashes especially with Kurtz, because he is the polar opposite of Kurtz. He takes his job very seriously. Whereas for Kurtz, this is just Monday. It's a good way to describe Kurtz. Yeah, pretty much. We'll see more of him when Invisible Victory comes around. So with the new heroes come the new villains. And we have to talk about the elephant in the room first, and that's Gates. I am not sure how I feel about Gates as a villain. If I had to describe Gates in any sort of way, it would be if you've ever played D&D and witnessed a chaotic evil player... He just does what he wants, when he wants, with no rhyme or reason, or any sort of real rationality. Yeah, that's not too—that's uh, not too far off from what I was thinking. I still think that that was just kind of that he was just kind of uh, just a little bit odd. No two ways. He was very over the top, and that. Definitely wasn't something I was expecting, and just gotta touch on what I said before, just the, the use of language in some of the lines he says dubbed is just some of, just frankly, some of the most wildest shit I have heard in a dub in a long while. <laughs> oh, John Swayze was having a blast playing him. You can tell just by his delivery. I described Gates with how you guys have said He's like Gowrin after downing a dozen cans of Bang Energy drinks. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's frightening. <laughs> it, if this was like a Mazinger Z sort of robot show, I would love him. But I feel that at times he can be a little too much at points. Yeah, a little too extra, as folks would say. And I think maybe he was that way just to kind of like give a little bit of levity to some of the darker situations. But, but I, in a way, he wasn't, because he was kind of mad. I don't know. This, this is a very confusing villain. He is, extremely. Like, like quite honestly, I feel like that the, uh, that the twins uh, were uh, more compelling villains than he was, if I'm being honest. Because in the books, he basically doesn't really exist. He doesn't appear until the very end of the fifth book, where he only has, like, a few lines, 
as a pilot, and then he just gets killed off by Sosuke. He's a non-entity. He doesn't even get a name. That's surprising. That That is a very weird change. Uh, indeed. Hmm. What's even stranger is the twin assassins, Jia Yufan and Jia Yulan, had their genders flipped for the anime. In the books, they're male assassins, and we don't really know much about them other than they're stone-cold killers. That, that's extremely strange. I mean, especially when you also consider how much those two were used in a lot of the promotional art for this series. I think this was done for sex appeal, but in a way, them being female as opposed to male kind of adds a little bit to their character. I can kind of agree with that. Like, there, there's definitely a fan service element to that uh, switch. Especially early on, because uh, we get a lesbian shower scene. Uh, I, I got major, uh, what are the name of the vampire twins from Black Lagoon? Hansel that, that was and the vibe I was getting, yeah. Oh, God. God. That's immediately where my mind went. I was like, oh. oh, so we're going here, I see. That's a memory hole that just got popped open again. <laughs> oh, God, that, that arc. <laughs> yep. I wouldn't say it's as disturbing, but I get the no. vibe. Yeah, yeah, I can it, agree with you there. It's nowhere near as disturbing, you're right. But uh, it definitely was it, t just a little grim reminder. And as we mentioned earlier, they get some of the most graphic kills in the whole series. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, huh? Early on, like, they slice these guys' throats open and you see, like, the inside of it. Oh, I mean... that uh, That's what threw me off. I, I had to replay that part of the video i was like wait did the, did, did i just see that guy's huh yeah that that was absolutely one of the biggest uh surprises that i saw in the entire series was when you saw her jump behind and basically slice the dude you know ear to ear and then you see the inside of the throat you're just like yikes i mean not i don't even think even black lagoon was this visceral like, yeah, I'm trying to, no, like, I don't think it was. I, I'll say that the TV series wasn't this visceral. Roberta's Blood Trail, on the other hand? Yeah. Alright, that's a whole other bag of worms for another day, my friend. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Even though I love Roberta's Blood Trail. Anyway, I, I think they're really good threats to both of them as they're both skilled pilots. And as we see in the middle of the series, they almost achieve the goal of Amalgam with Kaname. But... Do we want to talk about that scene? Because that is my favorite part of all the second raid. I, I think we can get to that, because that, that actually, I think, is uh, the high point of the series right there. The direction when Kaname enters Sosuke's apartment, and she finds that it's completely empty. Oh my god, I genuinely felt the tension in that moment. Yeah, no, they did a fantastic job just capturing how vulnerable Kaname actually was At without Sosuke. That's that's the key word that I was thinking of. The vulnerability. That's absolutely, I think, the big key right there. She truly does feel like somebody will take advantage of her situation, which is why she starts acting paranoid after that. Like, her behavior in school after that revelation, it feels realistic, as if somebody knows that somebody is stalking them. Yeah, I can buy that 100%. Yeah, no, that's definitely one of the parts where they, again, stuck the landing. It was a very believable scenario. 
And then, of course, you know, it finishes up, and then you get that entire episode, basically, where Kaname is basically going into downtown and trying... She, she feels that something is going wrong, and she's just trying her best to find a way away from it. It does lead to one of the more awkward moments in the series with the Love Hotel. Ugh, awkward, yeah, I can agree mm-hmm. with you there. I There's actually an explanation in the book as to why she did that. She did it as a deception to her pursuer. Because she felt that if she just went along with some creepy old man... Nobody would follow her because she's just acting so irregularly. Which I, I can uh, I can see that. Of course, I didn't find it all that disturbing considering that she comes out on top in the end. And yeah, mm-hmm. the pursuit between her and Jia Yulan is the best part of the whole series. Mm-hmm. And this is a good time to bring you back to a sidebar with something I mentioned last time around. AnimeGalleries.net Yep. <laughs> Now, I would go to AnimeGalleries.net to see if they had any new series up to look at, and if you go to the website, they haven't updated it since God knows how long, but people are still uh, uploading to there. Like, you know, cosplay photos and fan art and all that stuff. But I would usually go to, like, the top-rated images or the most-viewed images. And the number one most viewed image of all time it's different from when i last checked but it's still there the most viewed image alongside such wonderful images like sasuke from naruto acting emo (laughs) naru from love hina enjoying her time being splashed by a waterfall and fujiko mine hanging naked from a chandelier The number one image on AnimeGalleries.net, the most viewed image, was the illustration from the light novel of Kaname standing on the door of the apartment in nothing but her panties, holding her breasts up with one hand, aiming the taser down at her assailant. That one shot was viewed thousands of times on AnimeGalleries.net. And even though it's not number one anymore, it is still in their most viewed anime images. I mean, considering the time that well, that website was relevant, that's actually a lot of views. Yeah, I mean, and considering uh, when other uh, shows have uh, come by, yeah, no, I agree 100%. That is absolutely uh, surprising that it has stayed uh, that long. It's still up, and you can view it in all of its old BraveNet glory. I'm actually looking at the picture right now. It has, it has been viewed 811,251 times. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. And we're talking about what, about a 15 or 16-year-old image? 18 years, it seems. Wow. Wow. And that's pretty much the last of the glockenspiel about AnimeGalleries.net. But that shot, out of context, it's sexy, but it just has such raw emotion to it. Of a girl desperate to defend herself, aiming what looks like a gun down at somebody who's trying to do unpleasant things to her. In context, it's still just as an effective shot and illustration. I don't disagree with you. 
I, you, you nailed it uh, right on the head there, I think. And even reading it on the printed page, it is written just... Well, the translation just captures the mood so perfectly. And this, of course, leads us to the reveal of our true villain, Leonard Testarossa, Tessa's twin brother. I know that the twin sibling trend in anime is kind of a little overused and can be a cliche at points, but I'm going to say I love Leonard as a villain. He gives off, I think, a real good first impression. Oh, with what he does to, uh, what he says and does to Kaname? Yep. See, I've always had a soft spot for the classy evil characters. And, uh, this pretty much just kind of scratched that itch. Just, there's a rationality behind him, and I think this just makes him more compelling that he's actually civilized. There's a saying I he- I've heard that the best villains are the ones who feel that what they're doing is good. And Leonard is one of those villains. He fosters affection for Kaname, and you can tell he, he'll do everything in his power to keep her alive. But whereas Tessa wishes to keep the balance of power in the world, Leonard wants it all for himself. Although I'm kind of disappointed that we don't see enough Leonard. Yeah, I, I can agree with you there. I really think he could have used maybe one or two more episodes in the in uh, this series. Most definitely. We'll get plenty of Leonard once we get to Invisible Victory, but he does have a very strong presence and first impression once we see him. Also, his mini arm slaves are cool. Oh yeah, no, I thought that was a really cool concept. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it was definitely cool. Apparently in Super Robot Wars, they are units that you face, and they're tiny. They're like human-sized arm slaves, but the trade-off for their size is that they have very high defense. So if you come at them with Gao Gygar, your broken magnum's only going to shave off a little bit of damage. <laughs> That's Kaname's part of the story, or as the chapter calls it, her problem. Now let's go on to his problem with Sosuke. Because Sosuke's arc in Second Raid is mostly him trying to figure out who he truly is. Yeah, that's uh, something much more of, I think, an introspective season uh, than than the uh, first one was. And I think that's sort of why it's kind of fallen. Because Sosuke, this is the first season where we see Sosuke truly becoming human. He's trying to figure out what his needs and desires are. He's been with Kaname for so long that he's starting to understand what it means to truly be in a functioning society, given that he's lived a life in the military since he was just a child. Yeah, no, I just... I thought this was a really interesting look into his character. Like I said, not only was it about him finally just kind of learning to function in society, but this kind of the first time you see him have a desire to act on his own accord. Yeah, instead of just taking orders uh, uh, from his superior. And he deserts Mithril after losing to Clouseau in a duel of the two arm slaves. And he loses badly. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he, got, he, got, he gets his ass kicked. Yeah, it's like you look at just look at everything together. It's like he's he got moved into 
a field of work he doesn't want to do. He's away from the one person he truly connects with. And on top of that, he just lost his ability to pilot so much so where he wasn't able to operate the Lambda drive. This sort of plays into why I don't criticize the Lambda driver as heavily as some others. Because the Lambda driver is not a deus ex machina. It's more or less tied to how Sosuke is feeling in the moment. And in that duel that he has with Clouseau, you can clearly tell that Sosuke is not thinking straight, that he is mentally lost at sea, and that he truly cares about what's going on with Kaname. He's not ready to leave her on her own. Yeah, no, I mean, you have that plus uh, the mission and then just uh, the whole... You know, situation when they're undercover in Hong Kong, like one, two, three, you know, it's just three strikes for him. And he's just out to lunch in the most uh, extreme way. It's a series where just nothing seems to go right for Sosuke, but it does lead to one final confrontation. And this is one that I don't want to spoil, but does Full Metal Panic, the second raid, have one of the most cathartic deaths in anime you've ever seen. Yes. Yep. As I said, I'm not going to say just what happens or who it is that Sosuke meets, but when it happens, it's not just a great character moment for Sosuke, but it's just a death where when it happens, you're just overcome with joy to see this person die. Absolutely. As Kenshiro said, villains don't need tombstones. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> that was uh, definitely a shocking revelation. And uh, do we want to talk about the final battle? Because I know people complain about how the final battle ends. I will say it is. it feels really rushed. Like, you could have... You, you've said to me that this is how it is in the book, but it really feels like... Well, I mean, first off, Gates taking out the other twin feels just very unnecessary yes and then sosuke effectively just curb stomps the guy in like less than 30 seconds or should i say like uh like a brock lesnar squash match at this point what i would have liked to see with this ending was if they cut the original 13th episode and just made episode 12 a two-parter i think that would have definitely better service the show for a more satisfying ending yeah having read the books that's pretty much how it flows like sosuke takes on a whole flock of venoms five to be precise which is a very subtle reference to an old hong kong martial arts film the five deadly venoms which also shares the name of an ancient piece of chinese literature the five parasites I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it's just a fun coincidence that Sosuke takes on five Venom units. And considering that he struggled with Garin's Venom in the final arc of the first season, him taking out five with no problems and a fully functional Lambda driver, you really could have just drawn that out a little bit. Yeah. I think that's my biggest issue right there. I think that's kind of where the four uh, filler episodes really do drag it down. Mm. You eliminate even one of those episodes, you could have probably had a uh, a more uh, thorough uh, a more thorough uh, finale, as well as maybe pulling out a little more what 
snaps Sosuke out of his malaise and uh, not getting into spoilers for that one. I mean, he does meet a prostitute who looks just like Kaname. That was maybe the weirdest part of the entire series for me. <laughs> that was not in the books. That was no fooling. Yeah, that was made exclusively for the anime. And I get why it exists. It's there to serve as a motivator for Sosuke to feel nostalgia for Kaname and realize what he's fighting for. But I don't think it's brought up again in the series. No, I don't think so. How I would describe it is it's a sensical thing to do in a story, but not sensical for the moment of this story, if that makes sense. I, I think I can. I think I see what you're getting at there, Jordan. It's like I see why they did it through a narrative direction, but I think it would have been better to have taken the same approach just differently for uh, Sosuke. Like, just have him reflect on all the memories he has with Kaname. Like, this is a case where you could have a clip show that serves its purpose of showing how much Kaname means to Sosuke. And that's kind of going to be my final thesis when we get to Invisible Victory. But of course, Sosuke does become reunited with Kaname... And when Kaname and Sosuke are finally reunited, and Kaname just beats the ever-loving tar out of Sosuke, it just feels so satisfying. This is a case where the human moments hit more than the action scenes. I can agree there. 100%. This was a great moment that just stayed right inside of Konami's character, just delivering a full, absolute, butt-whooping, fully-paid-deductible on this man. You laugh at it, but at the same time, you look at it and go, ah, you haven't changed at all, have you? <laughs> uh, do we have anything more to add to this that we didn't talk about? There's really only one other point we haven't talked about, and that's the uh, bonus OAV. The bonus OAV, that's pretty much kind of a uh, a one-episode day in the life at the base. And it's it's all going to be dependent on how you tolerate Tessa, pretty much. Yeah, I, as I said in the previous episodes, I am not a fan of Tessa. And I find her antics to be a little tiresome. And, well, this little OAV, which again feels like a fumofu leftover... It ain't great. Although it is worth watching in the dub, if only to hear Clouseau say that he reads New Type USA. You see, watching these shows brightens my mood and lifts my spirits when I'm feeling down. I even read New Type USA on a regular basis so I can check out the latest shows. I, I love that magazine. But, but still, if my subordinates were to find out, it would mean serious trouble. <laughs> oh what a time capsule <laughs> yep. plus we also get the visual joke that everyone was demanding where they're watching a parody of future boy conan that features conan dressed up as detective conan <laughs> <laughs> but no I, I definitely agree episode 13 what it felt like it was just right out of famofu and it, it was it was a nice little bonus. It was the episode that made me like Clouseau a lot. 
Indeed, it, it shows a softer side to a character who's usually quite hard-nosed. So, going through all that, I have to ask, if this was the last Full Metal Panic series produced, if there was nothing else after this, no invisible victory or anything, would you accept this as a finale to Full Metal Panic? That's that's a bit of a tough ask, I would say. I'm not sure if I would, personally. My immediate thought process would be, God damn, another Genion ending. Oh! <laughs> Shots fired! I, I think that, you know, again, if it had to be the finale, I'd be like, uh, I, I definitely think there would have been more to explore, but I guess, like, okay, fine. But I definitely think that there would have been a lot uh, left undone if they would have uh, if they would have ended it here. It would have given me the Claymore syndrome. Yeah, although I will be one of the few people who will defend the anime ending of Claymore. If they were to use the end of the manga volume where the anime stops adapting it, it would have been worse. Mm. Yeah, very true. But Second Raid is pretty much the halfway point of the volumes after this, not counting Dancing Very Merry Christmas, there's only six volumes left. And I feel that I would be missing out on a proper adaptation, but I think Second Raid would be a good stopping point for the franchise. I feel that with a lot of modern manga adaptations, you just kind of have to expect that sometimes your series isn't going to end at the proper ending of the manga. Or if we can have look at uh, recent trends, wait 14 years for the next edition to your uh, favorite anime. Cough Devil is a part-timer, Cough. Mm, <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. I'm willing to wait until 2027 for the next season of Dorohedoro. I mean, Clear Card is... St- I mean, Car Captor Sakura Clear Card is still going on, and they already blew through a season of that? <laughs> I mean, the fact Higurashi has a follow-up series is still just blowing my mind right now. And as I said, we're still getting more Sayuki and Ikitosin. So, you know, miracles can happen. Absolutely. You never know what uh, sudden announcement is going to be coming out of Japan next. But all that being said, even though I feel that Second Raid has fallen in my eyes, that doesn't mean it's bad. It's Not still, at all. It is still a very strong, very competent, very well-written series, but having read the books and knowing what comes next... It definitely suffers from what is called middle book syndrome. It's laying the groundwork for something grander. But we wouldn't get a proper sequel to Full Metal Panic until 13 years later when we finally got our proper conclusion. And that signals that it is time for a transition into the second part of the retrospective Let's talk about Invisible Victory.
so we have arrived at the grand finale for now anyway full metal panic invisible victory 12 years after the second raid we finally get another proper installment in the full metal panic franchise this time around, the show was handled by Zebek, and it was directed by Katsuchi Nakayama. He hasn't really done too much of note. The only real series of note I saw in terms of his directorial credit was the 2006 series Good Witch of the West. However, like the previous few series, this one was written by Shoji Gato himself, so... He's still in charge of his own franchise, at least from a writing perspective when it comes to anime adaptations. Now, Invisible Victory adapts books 7 through 9, which just came out. And I do want to issue a correction from earlier in the review, since we're recording these on separate days. It turns out that the sixth book, Dancing Very Merry Christmas, did indeed get a proper adaptation. Of all things, it was as an audio drama. Interesting. I haven't read through all of the sixth book yet, although the only real thing I can understand we're missing is that we get a little backstory on Leonard, but honestly, I feel that even if we don't know what his full deal is, he still is a commanding presence, and we'll talk about that once we get into the show proper. So the story for Invisible Victory... Several months after the events of Second Raid and Book 6, I should add, things have calmed down on the home front for Kaname and Sosuke, as well as Mithril, too. However, one night, Kaname and Sosuke have a chance encounter with the head of Amalgam, Leonard Testarossa. And Leonard tells Sosuke and Kaname that Amalgam is changing their tactics. Now, instead of being passive in their fight, they're now going to take the war straight to them. And they're not kidding, but I don't think we want to talk about that right now. So, I'm pretty certain that none of us followed this when it came out. No, like, I knew it was coming out, but I don't have as good a habit of following shows week to week as maybe I once did, but... That was pretty much, like, I just followed, you know, some folks on Twitter that were maybe doing, like, weekly anime uh, uh, watches and just kind of going off of them. But even then, some of the stuff that they were talking about kind of flew over my head. Yeah, uh, I, I saw it, and I was happy to see that it came back, but uh, I was promptly distracted by ReZero airing and then Rising of S.H.I.E.L.D. Hero shortly after, and unfortunately forgot. Really? Rising of S.H.I.E.L.D. Hero was the same season? Uh, it was probably about like a year after, I believe. Okay, fair enough. Did any of you hear any buzz about it when it was coming out? Not really, at least not outside of the folks that were dedicated for uh, for Full Metal Panic. Yeah, I didn't really hear much uh, either. Like I said it was just mainly fans. All right, and before we get into the show proper, last question... What were your expectations going in? I'll say that my expectations, I was simply thinking, okay, you know, more of what we got, say, in, like, say, the first season or in Second Raid, 
maybe they're going to um, up the stakes a little bit. But that was kind of what I was thinking. I was think I was just thinking, okay, let's uh, we get another season with uh, this group. Let's uh, let's see where it goes. Uh, for me, I was excited to see it was coming back, and uh, my expectations were, this is the final season, right? <laughs> right? Uh, oh. oh boy. Mm. Well, it certainly does feel like it's building to the finale, all right. Yeah, it sure did. We'll we'll get to that. <laughs> As for me, I too was expecting it to be sort of more of the same. A logical continuation of the events of the second raid, which I will freely admit I had very little memory of when I went into Invisible Victory. I knew a little about what happened, but I barely remembered it, which I think it sort of shows how I feel about second raid when... I still enjoy it, but can't remember any of it. I certainly expected a little more out of Invisible Victory. I didn't expect to be blown away by it. Nope. Oh, yeah. I went in with fair expectations and uh, came out with a whole different perspective. Absolutely. (laughs) Good lord in heaven, this show. I think it's best we start off with simple facets before getting into our initial impressions. So, animation. This was done by Zebek this time around. Zebek, I don't want to say they're not known for quality, but they're not exactly a high-budget studio when you think of their filmography. Like, the most isn't the most successful thing that they've done up to this point probably Food Wars? No, that was JC Staff. Okay, that was JC Staff. My mistake. <laughs> they're mostly known for making ecchi shows like they've done some mecha anime that i believe early on they were responsible for things like martian successor nadesco die guard they did fafner and uh everybody's favorite toonami show pilot candidate <laughs> oh oh god but in recent years they've sort of done a lot of ecchi shows they're responsible for things like like Negama, the first series, not not the uh, not the one that was done by uh, that was done by Shaft. <laughs> yeah, not the Shaft Negama, the first one. Yep. Uh, Rin, daughters of Nima, scene, which I'll concede is actually a good show. They did Nemosame, really? Yeah, they did Rin, daughters of Nima, scene. Uh, Two Love Rue, <laughs> Kano Khan, Crawling Nyaruko San, Makin Ki Two. Oh my god, they did Keijo? Hey, I, oh. I like Keijo! <laughs> and another guilty pleasure of mine, Triage X. They also did Sorcerer Hunters, and I think their best series that they've ever made, Star Blazers 2199. Okay, that's a, that's a good quality one there. Yeah, sadly they're not around anymore. They've been absorbed into Studio Sunrise and are now called Sunrise Beyond, their project being 2019's Fafner the Beyond. Good to see uh, Sunrise holding that monopoly on the mecha genre. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was Zebex to begin with. But that said, I didn't notice that big a gap in terms of like animation quality between KyoAni and Invisible Victory. If anything, I think the action, in spite of the CGI mechs, is better in Invisible Victory than it was in Second Raid. I'll agree with you there. I also think that the character designs are tweaked 
compared uh, to KyoAni's uh, style that they used in Fumofu in Second Raid. But again, I think that the tweaks actually work very well to their strengths. I feel like the models aren't as detailed as they are in the KyoAni anime. But other than that, I didn't notice too much of a difference in terms of style or quality. And I think Zebek did a great job of imitating Shiki Doji's art style. I'm not one of those people who can identify which character designer worked on what set of episodes for Sailor Moon. I'm not that keen in my details. <laughs> like saying like, oh, uh, this one was designed by Masahiro Ando. You know what? Yeah, I give credit to those fans. They got great eyes for details. Oh, seriously. But speaking of character designers, we gotta bring this up, otherwise we won't be able to talk about it later. In the second third of Invisible Victory, there are two character designs that we could have easily joked about, because Sosuke meets a spunky young girl who wears a cutoff tank top and short shorts, and she has orange hair and brown eyes. Her name is Nami. What are you talking about? <laughs> Never heard about that in my life. That's no, no, the original character. I, I couldn't. I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell you uh, where that character was. <laughs> Not at all. No, I mean, I mean, I don't know who this Nami girl is. What is she like? Some kind of pirate or something? Uh, I couldn't begin to tell you, man. Wink, wink. Girl named Nami with orange hair and brown eyes, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I mean, One Piece was starting to take off in popularity around the time the book was first written. This one's more on the illustrator Shiki Doji than it is on the character designers for the anime. And the other character designer from that arc is named Lemon, who, I kid you not, is a spitting image of Benny from Black Lagoon. I am so glad I'm not the only one that thought that. As soon as I saw him, I thought, Benny, is that you? Exactly. And especially <laughs> when you're talking about them being in this, in this, what is it, Southeast Asia I island that's a <laughs> yep. little bit sketchy. I'm thinking like, hey, wait a minute. Did we step in, did we step into a crossover and we didn't even know about it all of a sudden? <laughs> Black Lagoon was only two years old by the time book seven and eight were written. So it's very likely that Shoji Gato was a fan of the series and wanted to model Lemon's character design after Benny, but that's only speculation. It still was uh, amusing. Just surprising to see that design just pop up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, Kanetake Ebikawa, the show's mech designer, returns to give us some really cool mecha designs for the new units, namely the ones in the gladiatorial arena, because there's some fun designs in there. I wouldn't say they're like ramshackle units that are in there, but they're just very uniquely designed. Like, you don't know, like, no two are alike. It looks really uh, striking. Like something out of something, a show like Scrap Heap Challenge? Yeah. I'm not gonna lie, as soon as that whole part popped up, I immediately was thinking real steel. <laughs> I'll get to what I was thinking when we talk about that arc, but, you know, one looks like the car from Scryed, one looks like the main robot from Megas XLR, there's mm -hmm. one that looks like the freaking Punisher logo. Nice. <laughs> like, those, those are some really fun designs. Of course, my favorite one of the bunch, well, to say it would be a spoiler, so we'll cross that bridge when we get to the spoiler section. If I have any complaints, it's that sometimes the models 
can look a little janky, and the character animation can be a little stiff at points. The one I noticed specifically was when Sosuke's going through that boot camp. Yeah, I, I can see that. And it might have been a problem with uh, the versions that I was uh, watching on streaming, but did, did you guys have any issues with uh, just kind of some certain scenes, maybe with some random jumps or, or anything? Uh, no, I watched mine on Blu-ray. Okay, I mean, that, I mean, that just might have been just because of what I was watching on streaming. Just uh, keep that in mind if you get this on physical. Yeah, I don't think I caught anything watching on streaming. No, nothing that was too made my radar go off. Those uh, those Mac models, though, at times. Oh, boy. Honestly, I didn't have a problem with the CGI for that. My only real problem was the CGI environments in the first few episodes. Those looked really, really, really bad. Yeah, yeah not to take shots, but those were, uh, those were Ruby quality. Ouch. Yeah. And we're talking early season, Ruby, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, we are. Okay. I'll admit, I do have a soft spot for early Ruby, yeah, but I will be the first to agree that there's some rough stuff in those early episodes. Oh, uh, I love it beyond all belief, but yeah, it has, a, it has its little um, eccentricities. To say the least. <laughs> so I think we've gone over everything we can go over for animation Let's talk about the soundtrack, and I have one question. Is this the best Full Metal Panic soundtrack? I would probably say, based on at least the opening alone, yes. Yeah, it, uh, it took them uh, how many years? 20 years, and we finally got a good opening. I mean, I, as I said, I like Tomorrow, the very first opening, but it's all downhill from there until Invisible Victory. And, invis <laughs> and Invisible Victory's opening absolutely hits hard. It's what the second raid's opening should have been. A logical advancement of the opening to show that the stakes are higher this time around. It actually fits a mecha military fighting show. I've been listening to it nonstop since I viewed it. Also, a little fun fact about the opening from an animation standpoint. You know who storyboarded it? Who? Masami Obari. I thought that I saw his names in the credits when, uh, when I was watching it. Yeah, this is why you always read your credits, kids. At least far as who animated it. Ah, amazing. <laughs> Toshihiko Sahashi returns once again to score the soundtrack, and it's great. The first two Full Metal Panic series, their OSTs were nothing to write home about. Second Raids was a little better. Invisible Victory is head and shoulders above the previous three seasons. Without question. Oh, without a doubt. This is this is some good stuff. You really do have music that fits a military sort of mecha anime. And because there's less comedy this time around, it gives Toshihiko Sahashi more of a focus as to what he wants the score to say in terms of its language, in terms of its tone. Oh, yeah. You do get some recycling uh, uh, here and there, but it's not anywhere uh, near as prevalent as uh, you would think it would be. They're not resting on their laurels in, in this. Speaking of recycling, there is one little musical callback in the series that hit me hard, but, um... Well, I won't say anything more after that. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't seen Invisible Victory yet, we're gonna spoil the whole series. Oh, yeah, and I got a lot of stuff to say about this one. Indeed. So, do we want to move on to voice acting? Let's go ahead. 
Moving on to voice acting, like last time, I'm only going to focus on the characters who are notable this time around. Minori Chihara plays Nami. She's most famous as Yuki Nagato in Haruhi Suzumiya. Minami Iwasaki in Lucky Star. Erica Brown in Violet Evergarden. Kaori Nakasenko in Sound Euphonium. And Miku Izayoi in Date Alive. So, she's a favorite of KyoAni. Not really a surprise there. Yeah, I I do actually remember hearing her as uh, Yuki <laughs> way early on when Haruhi came on. And it she is actually pretty good at kind of being soft-spoken, but you know, I would actually like to flip that over to Japanese and listen to her play Nami in this one. Like with the previous Full Metal Panics, I didn't bother with the sub because the dub is just so good. And speaking of that, that's uh, Trina Nishimura, uh, who played uh, Nami in English. Let's not get too far ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Lemon is played by Kenjiro Tsuda. We previously heard him on this show as Fire Emblem in Tiger and Bunny, but for all you Shonen fans, he is Sadaharu Inoue in Prince of Tennis, Kento Nanami in Jujutsu Kaisen, Joker in Fire Force, for something that isn't shonen, he's recently Tatsu in Way of the House Husband, and perhaps his most iconic and famous role to us in the West, he is Seto Kaiba in Yu-Gi-Oh! <laughs> that is a range! Holy shit! That is a range, and a really good range at that. <laughs> Kurama, one of the major lieutenants of Amalgam, is played by Kazuhiro Yamanji. He is Silver Fang in One Punch Man, Kenny Ackerman in Attack on Titan, Vincenta Venetti in 91 Days. You've probably already heard him as Henry Henderson in Spy Family as of this recording, but his two most notable roles don't come in anime. They come in dubbing elsewhere. He's the Japanese voice of Wolverine in the X-Men movies. Oh, wow. Hmm. And for all of you fans of the Yakuza games, he's Detective Makoto Date. Speaking of Haruhi Suzumiya, Lee Fowler, another one of Amalgam's lieutenants, is voiced by Tomokazu Sugita. He is Kyon from Haruhi Suzumiya, and also Sakata Gintoki in Gintama, Hideki Momosuwa in Chobits, and for video game roles, he is Yusuke in Persona 5, Krom in Fire Emblem Awakening, and Ragna the Blood Edge in Blaze Blue. Okay, no wonder why I got major flashbacks from Krom. As a huge Fire Emblem fan, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> that can't be. <laughs> oh, it is! Perhaps the biggest name in this cast in terms of new names is Marina Inoue. And, oh my god. Just to give you some of her most famous characters, she is Armin in Attack on Titan. Momo Yaoyorozu in My Hero Academia, Toka Yatogami in Date Alive, Rei Miyamoto in High School of the Dead, Jericho in The Seven Deadly Sins, Tsukiyumi in Sekirei, and for all of you people who are fans of these games, she is Alicia Melkiot in the Valkyria Chronicles games. Being just uh, put, put in the work right there, no two ways. Yeah, jeez. And finally, Masaru Ikeda plays Lieutenant Courtney. He's perhaps most famous as Helmer in the Xenosaga games, the Japanese voice of Irving Lambert in Splinter Cell, Iki Yoneda in Sakura Wars, 
Huang in Darker Than Black, Noin Bitter in Gundam 0083, Master Nekamamushi in One Piece, and Ra Ra Rasputin. Oh, I already made that joke. Never mind. Rasputin in Master of Mosquiton. <laughs> now, as for the dub, I thank my lucky stars that Funimation got this one because they're based in Texas. Sentai slash ADV is also based in Texas, so they got virtually everyone back. Yep, that was absolutely a big uh, win on their part. Everybody reprises their roles. Lucy Christian, Chris Patton, Allison Keith Ship, Blake Shepard as Leonard. They even got James Faulkner back as Clouseau. I thought he was replaced. That's a, yeah, you know, good to, see, good to see that they brought him back for it. It's also nice to hear Chris Ayers as Hayashi Mizu one more time before his tragic passing. Absolutely. And also, it's incredibly weird seeing Hilary Haig in a Funimation dub. <laughs> so true. Because <laughs> she's been an ADV slash Sentai lifer. I can't think of many times she's crossed over from Houston to Dallas to play a character in a Funimation dub other than the Full Metal Panic dubs. Talk about dedication to the role. Definitely. That's a, that's a big, that's a big uh, plus on their part. She must really love the role of Tessa in order to play that role over and over again. Okay, I'm looking at her credits on Anime News Network. I found one occasion where she did a Funimation dub. She was Seth Night Road in Trinity Blood. Wow, okay, that's one I haven't heard in a while. No kidding. Yeah, but other than that, it seems like she's mostly stuck with the cast in Houston. The only cast members who didn't reprise their roles, and they're small for the most part, Ren Makihara this time around is played by Julie Shields, and Kent Williams takes over for the deceased Mike Kleinhens as Lieutenant Kalanin. The biggest replacement, I think, though, is Chief Mardukas is no longer played by Andy McAvin. That part's now played by Mark Stoddard. Likewise, McAvin, who was the voice of Al, the AI for the Arbalist, has also been replaced by Christopher Waycamp. And I don't know why. I guess Andy McAvin just retired from the profession? I don't know. I'd have to ask Tiffany Grant or someone on that one. Probably. There's still so much that, you know, we never really know what goes on behind the scenes uh, of these things, all told. But outside of the main cast, this is unquestionably a Funimation dub. Tim, you already mentioned Trina Nishimura as Nami. Some other regular Funimation names that you're going to see in this dub include the likes of John Bergmeier, Elizabeth Maxwell, Jeremy Schwartz, Morgan Berry, Brian Massey, uh, Dallas Reed, Robert McCollum, Sarah Wiedenhaft, and Lydia Mackey. Good list of regulars there, yeah. Indeed. And, yeah. you know, I don't think we can really say anything else other than we like the dub more than the subs. Do we agree here? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely dub all the way on this one. I think we're all in agreement. Like, no offense to the Japanese side, but... I find Full Metal Panic to just be so much more enjoyable. 
in English than I do on the Japanese sides. And I'm not even like a sub over dub kind of person. I just love how it sounds in English. It works really well in English. It absolutely does. And even after all these years, the cast still sounds fantastic. I actually would say they sounded their best in this one. I don't know what it was, but the voice direction just seemed a lot more on point this time around. Well, also, most of the cast was fairly new, not just to their roles, but to the industry at the time. I will always cite that ADV class of the early to mid-2000s as, like, the golden crop of fantastic voice actors based out of Texas. Yeah, I can't disagree with you there. (laughs) And this dub is the cast fully maturing into their roles. Just years of experience, and they're just dialed in. Yeah, no, they definitely spared no expense. Honestly, probably one of the best dub performances I've heard in anime, and that's saying a lot. I can agree with that. And since we're all in agreement, I think we've done enough beating around the bush. Let's finally review the series. Now, let's try to keep this part as spoiler-free as we can. But, in short, what did you think of the series overall? Overall, I think it's a wonderful escalation of the stakes and, you know, a great exploration into Sosuke. I think a, I think a better exploration into Sosuke than it was uh, uh, in uh, Second Raid. There are some minor things that I could quibble about, but overall, though, I think that this is, without question, the best the series has ever been. I would have to agree. I'd say this is probably my personal favorite season in the series. Had a fantastic start. The first four episodes, five episodes even, were absolutely fantastic. Without question. The middle part kind of... I wouldn't say I disliked the middle part, but it seemed as though it was just a very weird stopgap. I get why they uh, kind of make that little detour in the middle. It could have been executed maybe a little bit better, but I overall enjoyed it. Yeah, it's not to say I disliked it. It just felt there was so much momentum going with the first act that when it just kind of came to that stopgap, I was like, "Uh, oh, I have to breathe. Got it. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) And then very strong, if not a little bit surprising conclusion in my book the first four episodes we'll get into even more detail once we get to the spoiler sections but that first act like if it doesn't hook you i don't know what kind of anime fan that you are i will agree with jordan about the middle portion to a point but on that same token i think that it's sort of necessary after what happens in the first act Yeah, I I can agree with that. I'll have to explain my standpoint later. The reason why I'm a little bit harder in that middle, it's because it was a uh, mismanaged, I guess, expectation, I would say. But I'll cover that in the spoiler section. As far as the ending goes, I understand why, given Zebek likely either didn't have the budget for more or wanted to do more, but was flummoxed by their schedule... Apparently, it was supposed to be 24 episodes, but it got cut down to only 12, so Mm. we only got one core. Again, I'm only speculating here. I didn't really do any research into this one. 
No, that's disappointing if they got cut down from uh, from 24 to 12, because it's not that it ends on a bad note, far from it. It's just that now it's basically, you're almost like Woody uh, from uh, in Toy Story 2, wondering what happens in the, in the next episode of Woody's Roundup. Well, it's not like it ends on a dramatic cliffhanger. It more like ends on a transition point. Yes, yes. Like, I'll give you my comparison when we uh, talk about spoilers. Um, In spite of the problems with the ending, though, I will say I thought they did as great a job as they could cramming all that story into 12 episodes. It doesn't feel rushed. That's what I admire most about it. Agreed. It really doesn't. Oh, no, it kept a very strong pacing throughout the whole time. Any final non-spoilery thoughts before we go into the spoilery part of the review? Uh, nah, I say let's take a deep dive into the spoilers. Yeah, I'm I'm ready to jump feet first into this. Alright, everybody. So we've already set off the spoiler alarm for Second Raid. Now, if you have gotten this far, but still have yet to watch Invisible Victory... You have been warned, we are going to spoil the whole show. So, if you have not seen Invisible Victory yet, turn it off now. But if you're not afraid of spoilers, or have seen the show and want to hear our thoughts on the nitty gritty details, go ahead now, because I'm about to set off the Super Spoiler Alarm. So, let's start at the beginning with those first four episodes. And honestly, I kind of didn't know what to expect when Leonard says that he's going to escalate the conflict with Mithril. But when I finally found out what it meant, oh my lord. Yeah, oh It leads to four of the best episodes of anime you will ever watch. Oh, it's absolutely just... It grabs you, and it basically just... You're compelled to just keep watching. You see, I found myself repeating the same phrase for the first four episodes. Oh, shit! Yeah. (laughs) That's a good way to put it! No! (laughs) This is how you start anime! (laughs) Oh my god, just everything that Sosuke and Kaname are put through in these first four episodes. Because Amalgam launches a two-pronged attack, or rather a multi-pronged attack, against Mithril, against Merida Island, where Tessa's unit is located, and ultimately against Sosuke. Yeah, Amalgam was not playing. Leonard was dead serious when he said he was upping the ante. And, you know, it's good to see a villain actually do what he set out to do. He followed through, and boy howdy, you're exhausted by the end of the whole thing. And in the end, this show does something 
I can't say I've seen in any other anime. This is one of few times where the villain wins. And I don't mean like, oh, well, our heroes are down, but they're not out. Or, oh, well, they've lost the battle, but not the war. Oh, no. Leonard and Amalgam score a decisive victory against all three opponents. Against Mithril, against Tessa, and against Sosuke. It's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. If anything, I'd compare it to, like, you're playing a game of League of Legends, and you just get stomped. There was... There was just no chance for Mithril. No, they they were completely caught off guard, and then just everything just conspires against them. I wouldn't say this was the equivalent of you getting blown out in a video game or even, like, a sports game, because even blowouts can be fun. Just watching this, though, like, your heart is just racing the entire time as you wonder how our heroes are going to get out of this. Yeah, shoot. I was thinking it's like, man, Invisible and Victory, this is seeming like an unwinnable victory right now. Sidebar, but can we just talk about how clever a title Invisible Victory is? Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Because what are the initials for Invisible Victory? I-V. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what do the letters I-V together in Roman numerology mean? Four. Four. Yes! So, I love the cleverness of calling it Invisible Victory as a way of it being abbreviated to Full Metal Panic 4. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think it took a little while uh, when, I, when the title was announced, but then it's, I just kind of thought about it. And I'm like, hey, you know, that's actually kind of clever. It's especially true when you see the logo uh, for the show, mm -hmm. especially like when they have it on the, uh, the Blu-ray case. Like, it, it, like, they really push that hard, and it, it's really striking. In the credits, it's referred to as FMP4. But back to just that intro, because usually most shows wait until the midway point to really screw over our characters, but because Invisible Victory has the advantage of simply being a new installment of a long-running book series, it doesn't need to wait. Yeah, no, it just it just jumps right in and then it just turns the intensity up right away. <laughs> yep, it just it does not let you go. It sinks its fangs into you and you're you're being dragged on this craziness whether you like it or not and you know, I was here for it. Yeah, you're basically in the same line of fire as some of the uh, civilians that wind up getting caught in the crossfire in Japan. <laughs> And that's what I want to touch on. I think this is the first time we've seen civilian casualties. There is a lot of collateral damage in these first four episodes, but one in particular that really hit me when I first saw it, and that's what happens to poor Kyoko. Oh, jeez. Yeah, this was this was vicious. Yeah, I was I was not expecting, especially you know he was he was carrying her in the arm slave and. We saw him do that with Konami in the first season. We think, okay, he's okay. You know, they're going to be all right. And then the next thing we see, we see this big, this big piece of shrapnel in her stomach. And that's just one thing I loved about the show. It's like every like little victory that the protagonist would have. It just, it comes with a monkey's paw effect. It's like, yeah, he saved Kyoko, but she's kind of bleeding out. Hey, that's what happened to me with Pride of Orange. 
like you feel so bad for everyone, especially for poor Kyoko, because even if Kyoko didn't contribute anything to the story, every time you saw her on screen, she had a presence to her that made you smile. Oh, yeah. And I should just point out, I mean, Monica Rial's voice acting absolutely uh, provides that as well. That's one of the big benefits of watching this show dubbed. It's like her voice work is second to none uh, when it comes to that uh, crop of uh, voice actors that you talk about, Nate. She has to show an emotion as Kyoko that she hasn't shown, at least outside of Fumofu, and that is fear. And even then, that fear was tinged with with comedy. I mean, this is the first time that we're seeing her be, like, you know, really fearful, probably for the first time since uh, since the plane hijacking back at the beginning of the series. But even then, Kyoko wasn't really the target in that attack. That was Konami. No. And to be honest, I think it being Kyoko is what made this hit way harder, because Frasette's just an innocent girl. It's probably why Kaname makes the decision that she makes. Yeah, because Kaname has witnessed several battles, but those were where she was far from home. First in a Soviet country, then in her own backyard where no real civilians were involved. She was just merely a bystander witnessing a raging kaiju mech stomp across the city. Could be pointed out at night as well, so... Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't have civilians walking out and about at that time, mostly. And that's just what hits different ab- about this part. It's not only is it like, hey, you know, she's essentially an innocent bystander, but if you really think about it, it's a terrorist attack on her home country. Like, yeah, <laughs> there's she, a lot of craziness going on. She has that sense of helplessness to her, where all she can do is just stand by and watch as a town that is so close to her is destroyed by this militaristic organization. Exactly, and I got, again, I gotta give props to the, or the uh, author on this. This really was a realistic depiction of the character. I totally buy that she would act this way. Yeah, absolutely. Like, maybe if the show was more popular, there would be more people questioning this moment. But I think everything we've discussed right here... You know, again, it's exactly what you said. This is the first time that you've seen this big, large-scale, you know, a terrorist attack, complete with civilian casualties, complete with her friends, you know, basically being put in harm's way, and the fear that she has that Sosuke could wind up, you know, even worse off, and she just is like, no, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I gotta, I have to stop this. And in the end... Sosuke pretty much winds up worse for the wear. I mean, he doesn't suffer too much in the way of injury, but the Arbalist is pretty much Fubar. The Arbalist is Fubar. Al basically gets shut down. And in the aftermath of the whole thing, he comes clean with the class. That, I think, was like the big punctuation at the very end of those episodes was seeing Sosuke go in front of the class and basically come clean as to who he was and what he was doing there. Definitely, and just the way, speaking just on that scene, the way that um, one of Kyoko's friends acted, The uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but... Uh, Onod, I think? Yeah, Onod. 
I'm amazed that he managed to have a comeback in here. I thought everybody forgot about him. Hey, credit where it's due. Not uh, not uh, ignoring uh, side characters. It just it really just makes you feel bad for Sosuke. Like he hit a low point in um a second raid, but I'd say this is the lowest point he hits as a character. Like he this is true rock bottom for the poor guy. Nah, yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Because again, when you're talking about rock bottom in second raid, it's almost like that there was this listlessness about him. Here, it, it, there's the real. Uh, feeling that he failed yeah like he's genuinely defeated and it hurts to see him that way and yeah just him walking away out of the school and off to uh off to try to rescue her like that's but that final shot with him at the gates of the school is i think a really good shot do we even want to talk about what happened on marita island with mithril because even if that wasn't as impactful on me as it was with Kaname and Sosuke, it's still a very suspenseful moment where you don't know what's going to happen to all the people in Mithril. There's even points where some of the soldiers even say that they're thinking of turning coat. Oh yeah, like even in around with some of the characters, like we see, you know, Kurtz and, and Mao get a bunch of soldiers together and... You know, one of them, one of the underlings basically starts saying that, hey, you know, even floats the idea of turning on Tessa. Okay, I'm just at least going to say this. This season, I think, was probably uh, the best for Tessa out of out of all four seasons. We're getting I, ahead of our... Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but I'm just saying just right now, this is, uh, this is what. We'll go into more detail when we get to certain episodes, but th I think that this was really the start of a really great character arc for her this series. I agree 100%, but more on that later. And I will say that there is a little clever bit of foreshadowing with the Marita scenes for something that happens a little later on, but we'll save it for the last third of the show. Oh boy. But my favorite, like kill in this early part is when the Tuatha Dedanan surfaces and its nose collides with a behemoth. Oh, that was so cool. That, oh, that's great. Oh my god, I love it. That, that That's just taking everything that you've got and just, you know, just saying full speed ahead to hell with it. <laughs> it's a great way to end the Marita portions, but... Overall, I would say those first four episodes are just so great, if only for Kaname and Sosuke. So now we move on to the middle third of the series, and honestly, the change in tone and location didn't bug me at all. Again, I think that with this series, you kind of have to, you know, be ready to, you know, switch locations at a moment's notice. Especially when you know you're in like a story-based season, you're not doing one of the uh, <laughs> one of the uh, you're do you're not doing a Fumofu-esque uh, story. If we're talking wrestling, the middle third of Invisible Victory is what would be called the Let Me Up match. Yeah, yeah. Where after such an intense match with a lot of storytelling, a big spot, something that advances development of one of the workers. You need something a little lighter, maybe a comedy match, maybe a shorter match, maybe a women's match. Yeah. <laughs> uh, th there could be words about that. I, I, I would, I would, 
I would almost say that this is kind of like how you would, I, I don't know, maybe this is how you would follow up, like, say, one of the uh, taker matches from, uh, from uh, say, 24 through 28. <laughs> Even though I know some of those close the show, but that's beside the point. As you mentioned earlier, Tim, it feels like, in terms of location and with what's going on with Lemon, that Invisible Victory is taking cues from Black Lagoon in terms of location and in terms of storytelling. I can see that. The The, the only unfortunate thing is we don't get a, a, a deeper look into Namsok to see just how uh, bad it actually is, which is understandable, but also kind of just like, <laughs> we don't get to see uh, this uh, uh, this city's version of Sawyer the Cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Namsak is as bad as Rowanapur. It looks to be a lot nicer. Probably not. That's just a, that's just some exaggeration there. <laughs> Especially with that hotel. Yeah, definitely. The reason why I feel about the middle section like the way i do is i fully anticipated this to be a conclusion mind you that was to my own faults but it just felt like a weird like after just going from the craziness and then kind of this like weird momentum stop i was like um okay this is 12 episodes and we are halfway in what the heck is going on what it reminds me of the most though isn't black lagoon it reminds me of Wudo City from Armored Trooper Votoms. Because part of Wudo, which is the first arc in Votoms, involves our main hero, Chiriko Kyuve, getting involved in a gladiatorial mecha combat arena sort of dealio. Only in the case of Chiriko, he's trying to sort of solve a mystery regarding Wudo and the people around it. With Sosuke, though, he's sort of trying to boost his morale, gain his confidence back as a mecha pilot. And again, for me, it just, it's like a almost shot for shot, like recreation of real steel in a way. I know it's very strange to say that, but gladiatorial robots, death matches, kind of these like robots that are put piece by piece together with sponsors plastered on the uh, ASs. I appreciate I appreciated that, especially uh, especially with uh, the newest season of uh, Tiger and Bunny just premiering recently. I don't know. It's just like this middle part. Just I guess it just felt off to me. Not to say it was bad. It's just not where I expected it to go. It's not where I expect it, but I think it also has a uh, has a pretty good conclusion with that final episode of the arc. Yes, that final episode really did make me appreciate this little tidbit a lot more. Yeah. I know that the seventh book came out in 2004, but Real Steel didn't come out until 2011. So the resemblances are more coincidental than anything. Probably. <laughs> yeah, most likely. But yeah, the finale where Sosuke takes on Kurama, oh my word. Like, the, the siege of the hospital is spectacular, and the showdown between him and Karama, wow. Oh yeah, definitely. 100% fantastic. And it transitions nicely into the third half. And if there's one complaint I think people would have about the middle third, it's that people will constantly be asking, well, where's Konami? I think 
it's good that the show sort of leaves us hanging as to what Kaname is doing or where she's being taken to in this series. Because it sort of leaves that suspense in the back of your mind. Yeah, I, I can agree with you there. Like, it, it is... It is extru- it is surprisingly light on her, but it's not for no reason, I don't think. And when you finally see her, you're both relieved, but you're uneased as well. Because Kaname is basically being held captive by Amalgam at this very nice sort of... I don't want to say playboy manner. How, how would you describe this? I, I don't know. It kind of gave me more vibes of, say, like... Uh... I, I guess uh, I guess of uh, what the uh, main house in Scarface would be like, not like a like a twenty first century version of that. Yes, kind of like that. It's the very upscale uh, villa. Upscale villa's got all kind of like the security details and everything. And it's at least relieving to see that Kaname is at least being treated well, but she is still very much a captive of Leonard. I absolutely adore how Leonard treats her. He doesn't see her as a mere object. Even though there's some objectification going on, he genuinely has feelings for her, even if Leonard is sort of being a playboy. I I think he's trying to play some kind of psychological games uh, with her to try to ease her uh, guard down. Uh, But at least luckily for Konami enough, she's got enough... um, uh, enough uh, mental Tenaci- fortitude and tenacity. Yes, thank you. That that was the word I was looking for. Uh, enough tenacity to really kind of uh, resist that. It just shows that Leonard's a very... He's a different type of evil. Where Gowan, I would say, is... I would classify as a degree of stupid evil. He's very impulsive and emotional-based. Chaotic evil is the phrase you're looking for. Yeah, Gowron's chaotic evil. I would say Leonard is definitely more lawful evil. Evil. That would you say that maybe Karama's uh, maybe more neutral evil in, in uh, this series? Ian, uh, I mean uh, Nate. I would agree because both he and Leonard seem to have a code of sorts. Also, I love how Karama has carrots in his cigar holder instead of cigarettes. <laughs> That, that that was uh, that was surprising, yeah. A man who decides to quit smoking is okay in my book, especially since <laughs> I've sworn it off. I was almost expecting uh, uh, gum to be in there, like in Johnny Dangerously. <laughs> <laughs> I think the carrots makes it even funnier. I'll give you that. <laughs> and the fact that it's played straight makes it even better. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, what's great is that they don't ram that joke into the ground. It's just... Hey, he's got carrots in his cigar holder. They bring it up once, and that's it. It's just a simple throwaway line. Yeah, definitely kind of gave him a, made him a little bit charming in a way. All the villains in Full Metal Panic have been great, but Leonard is still my favorite. Leonard, I, de- I definitely think, is a different class of uh, bad guy. Speaking of villains, do we want to talk about the betrayal? Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't want to, I almost don't want to say who betrays Mithril, and the first time I watched it, I felt the betrayal didn't make a whole lot of sense, but the betrayal was cleverly foreshadowed in the first third. 
with just a simple throwaway line and one little throwaway bit. But it was there. It was. It absolutely was. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't catch that. I was just completely blindsided. I was like, oh shit. Okay, that happened. You almost want uh, you almost want a uh, compilation of uh, of Jr. You know, screaming at screaming at uh, Triple H. You know, why'd you do it, you son of a bitch? <laughs> and the question that I have with that is, is that you know, how long has this been brewing? It's not a question that's answered uh, in the series, but I think it's a fair question to ask. You know, how long ha- has this been brewing for? It's still kind of both shocking and frustrating at the same time, because just, man, Mithril keeps taking L's in this series. Yeah, no kidding. Seriously. Speaking of Mithril, this has my favorite Tessa moment in the entire franchise. Yes, I, I think mm-hmm. I know I think I know what you're talking about, and I agree 100%. <laughs> the moment when we see her after the middle third, and she's walking across the Golden Gate Bridge, or a bridge in San Francisco, in her bare feet, behaving like a dementia patient. It, it, like, when you see it for the first time, it's like, oh, no. It, you're, you're, just, you're just thinking to myself, God, it's like, can no one uh, take a W in this series? Much like with Kyoko earlier, it's Tessa showing an emotion she has never shown in the series. Because previously she's been very chipper, upbeat. Even if she panics, she remains calm and focused. This is the first time we see Tessa express defeat. And it's hard to watch. I definitely was feeling bad for Tessa. The scenes with her in the hospital. Oh my goodness, you feel so sorry for her. But then, oh man. She has her single finest moment. And to show that Mithril, even after taking the biggest L of their careers, still has plenty of fight left in them. The whole moment where the whole where, where the whole thing gets revealed with Mithril might be one of the top moments of this series. Like, no two ways about it. I still say my favorite moment is is the ending of the first third, but I'd say this is a close second. Definitely. Definitely. And especially, you know, how gradual the whole thing is. Like, it starts off like, okay, it's like this is this is going very bad, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait, oh, shit, uh, Mal was undercover as the nurse. And then all of a sudden you hear a sniper bullet and there's Kurtz on, on uh, running interference. And then an entire platoon of, of Mithril soldiers comes swooping in to basically you know, recapture uh, momentum on their side. Like, it is a terrific scene. It was just a scene that just had me just want to scream out, Finally! <laughs> <laughs> I've said that I wasn't a fan of Tessa. But rewatching Invisible Victory, we finally get some honest-to-God character development for Tessa. It's just because we see so much of her. Like, we saw this side where, you know, where she's just defeated, only to just kind of trick us into the little twist that happens in that arc. But we had it in the beginning where she 
threatened to shoot someone for mutiny. I think that's a great point to... Uh, I, I referred to that one earlier. I didn't bring it up because I knew we were going to get to Tessa. Yeah, that first moment where she shoots the ground when one of the soldiers is uh, discussing it. like That's kind of one of those moments where you look at her and be just like, okay, she ain't messing around this time. <laughs> but as great as Tessa's scenes are in this show... Kaname's scenes are easily my favorite. To circle back to Kaname, the moments of her when she's walking around the villa, the scene where she decides to fall back first into the swimming pool, and she just starts swimming back and forth. It's a phenomenal character moment for Kaname. Oh, without question. (laughs) Basically just rediscovering herself, her own passion... It's one of few moments where she can be truly free and not just a captive of amalgam. Yeah, just that whole situation led me just feeling bad for her. Like, if there's any analogy I'd use, it's like she was a a bird trapped in a cage. I see what you did there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a bird cage analogy, and it's kind of in your face. (laughs) Oh, and just one more thing uh, about uh, about Tessa before we get too far away from it. Uh, the phone call. The phone call? I. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh, that is the reason why I just love this dub. <laughs> just hearing her drop in. Oh my god! It's the guy out. <laughs> oh. No, that is Tessa's best moment. Absolutely. <laughs> and just hearing Hillary Haig deliver it with such conviction, just absolutely incredible. Just a great, great moment and a great capstone on that whole scene. Ah, <laughs> uh, that is the cherry on a fantastic episode. But of course, that brings us sort of to the final battle for this series as Mithril raids the Amalgam Compound. Again, I uh, reprise my phrase for this entire uh, arc of Fomo Panic. Oh, shit. Yep. <laughs> like, Mithril's mechs we know are reliable, but Amalgam likely having captured several Whispered, it's clear that their mechs are a lot more advanced. So yeah, and we don't we don't know how many they've captured, but they definitely seem to have an advantage uh, AI wise. The big one, of course, is Leonard's mech, the Belial, and that's a and that's a frightful looking mech. No two ways about it. And to see Sosuke raiding the compound with basically a junker, but still managing to get some convincing kills on the opposition, sort of speaks more to his skill as a pilot than it does the mech itself. Because it's not necessarily how strong your mech is. If you can't pilot it, you're not worth anything. I I say this when I, uh, whenever I've helped uh, customers at my job uh, pick out, like someone's getting a bat and they want to get like one of these fancy $400, you know, uh, two-piece bats that are all different. I say, you you can spend as much money on on the bat as you want. The only person that's going to be able to make it work is someone who knows how to swing it right. It's not the car that makes the driver. No, it is not. <laughs> and just on that, I like the little touch of... Uh, it. Be, I can't remember the exact model AS it was, but just uh, Sosuke touched up on it 
earlier in this season said, oh, I used to do training with, like, this was, uh, he knew all the quirks of this mech because he previously, like, started his career in that AS suit. So it's a nice little callback of continuity, which explains why he's able to get such a jump on the opposition with a junker mech. Yep. And again, let's keep in mind, like, this thing didn't even have a Lambda driver either. <laughs> nope. But of course, this mech leads to the reveal of Sosuke's new mech of choice, the ARX Levitine. I love the Levitine's design. Oh my god, it is amazing. It looks like Zero from Mega Man X. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, oh my gosh. I love I love the red that's on there. I'm, you know I'm a sucker for red, uh, Nate. But yeah, I, I love a good uh, red accent uh, as much as anyone, and and I love the look of this mech. Again, fan the the inner Mega Man fanboy just hits me. Not only is it the the red and white colors, but it's the yellow plume that gets me. I love how that's pretty much where he stores the Lambda driver in that thing. The yellow ponytail is its power level. and it also has like four arms apparently like it's a bloody machamp (laughs) oh that's amazing if i have any more complaints i find it rather tiresome to see sosuke get a new mech and just start tearing through people i wasn't a fan of it in second raid I'm a little more forgiving of it here because it's meant to show just how powerful the Levitine is, but I'll give it this. It's at least believable. Yeah, definitely. For me, it was just at this point, they took so many L's that I was like, you know what? I'm as tropey as it might be. I am happy. He is just a whooping ass in a new mech. Yeah, I, I I think that's kind of what it is. It's supposed to be th- that big moment, that big moment of uh, triumph at the end of a at the end of such a long and arduous mission. I think were this any other show, I would probably be complaining about how much of a Deus Ex Machina it is. But if this was any other show. And the heroes got this godlike mech that tears through everything from out of nowhere. I would probably call BS on this. But considering just how much Sosuke and company went through this season, they earned this one. They absolutely did. And hey, it's a lot more believable than, say, Kaizuka Inaho from Aldnoa Zero? <laughs> I mean, it just shows that a competent writer could spin a trope and make it work effectively. Definitely. Yeah, it's like tropes aren't bad inherently. It's how you use them. Exactly. It just, at this point, it was just executed so well. And I'm just like, you know what? Okay. I'm here for it. I'm loving everything that's happening right now. Give me more. But after what is a very intense fight scene, we have to talk about the other phone call. Yep. The scene that really got me in the feels, because this is the second time where Kaname asserts herself and takes matters into her own hands, albeit unintentionally. 
because as she's being escorted to the escape chopper, Leonard asks her to shoot him. And she hesitates at first, but she does the deed, grazing his head, but not killing him. As the chopper's flying away, she's able to contact Sosuke. As the chopper's flying away, she takes a soldier's gun and puts it right to her head, basically realizing that this is the end for her, that she likely won't be seeing Sosuke again. But after some convincing, she is able to contact Sosuke, and ultimately after a heartfelt conversation, Kaname puts down the gun and accepts that even though she and Sosuke are worlds apart, the two will meet again. And just the acting in that scene, and when the original ending for the show comes on, like, that hit me. Oh, emotionally. yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I, I, I thought it was cool the first time around. Like, I thought, it was like, oh, that's cute. They're playing the original ending song. And then once it hit the second time, I, I had tears in my eyes. It's incredibly well executed. It's, it's a terrific, because you literally do think, at least for a moment, that, and again, this is the final episode, you wonder maybe if, uh, if she's really going to go through with it. Mm-hmm. Like, if you didn't have any pr- prior knowledge of the series, you could think that maybe this would be it, but then she pulls herself out of it. I mean, just given the tone of the season so far, I wouldn't have been surprised if that was just the natural end of the character. It feels plausible with all that Kaname has witnessed. The devastation of her hometown. Being taken away from the one man she can truly trust. Forced to work as a captive for Amalgam. Almost killing her captor. And and witnessing Sosuke failing to save her. She feels like she is at the end of her rope. But hearing Sosuke's voice again, she regains her confidence. And even if she is still a prisoner, she knows that Sosuke is still out there and that he cares about her. And I think we're going to end this segment mirroring what we said in the last episode, where we talk about how Second Raid and Invisible Victory is all about how important Kaname is to Sosuke. Because prior to their meeting, Sosuke is just another soldier. He's a mech pilot, and a good one at that. But he doesn't know anything outside of the military. He has been a soldier his entire life. All he knows is combat. He doesn't have a social life. He trains by day, sleeps by night, pilots a mech in between. When he first meets Kaname, he sees her as nothing more than, well, an object. Not in the objectifying women sort of way, but more or less just... She's a mission objective. Yes. I'm going to protect this girl. My duty will be fulfilled. I'll go back to living on the Tuatha Dé Danann with my peers. But as the series progresses... And Sosuke gets hit in the head with a paper fan a few too many times. (laughs) 
Sosuke develops something that he's never developed before. Feelings. He starts worrying for Kaname not as an objective he has to protect, but as a friend, an ally, and ultimately, a romantic interest. This is why I love the two of them as a couple. Because both sides ultimately learn to realize how important they are to each other. Kaname loves Sosuke as a protector, as a guardian, and Sosuke loves Kaname as a friend. He has peers on the ship. Tessa, Kurtz, Mao, Lieutenant Kalanin, Chief Mardukas, but nobody that he could truly say humanized him. His connection to Kaname is ultimately what humanizes him as a character. I'd say that's a beautiful capstone right there. Yeah. And I would probably say that that uh, final, that little post credit scene with all them back on the on the Dadanan, uh, I would say it's, to, to me at the very least, it's it's evocative a little bit, I think, of, of uh, The Last Jedi, where it's a, a case of, okay, maybe we, we weren't uh, successful in our mission, but there's a renewed sense of uh, there's a renewed sense of uh, urgency and a renewed sense of uh, duty with them all reunited and back on the ship that they called home. To me, it's more a scene of where Mithril is reunited and rejuvenated. This is the first time they've beat Amalgam this series, and even though they lost the first leg of the war, this is them realizing that even if they may be in an unwinnable situation, it is still possible for them to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Yes. They forced mm -hmm. Amalgam to retreat. In the case of Sosuke, he's taken out one of their top lieutenants. Now, all they need to do is chase them down to the next location. It's building to something big, but unfortunately, with Zebek going bankrupt... Lord knows when we're going to get another Full Metal Panic series, but you never know if IN ANOTHER WORLD WITH MY SMARTPHONE can get another series, uh. then hopefully Full Metal Panic can get one, and hopefully it's by sunrise. I definitely think that yeah, there's going to be a little bit of time in between these shows. I really do think that they're going to find some way to finish this off. I really do. I think... I think Shoji Gato is going to fight uh, for this show and, and try as hard as he can to maybe get it to get it across the finish line animated. I'm not gonna lie, if we don't get a follow up or a conclusion to this, it'll be a it's a damn shame because they laid the groundwork to a very compelling story. They've come a long way; just every bit of Full Metal Panic just improved over time and just i really hope it doesn't go the way of being stuck in limbo yeah agreed 100 percent. like it, 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 there are shows out there that you know again you <laughs> you bring out shows out there that it's just amazing you know deal that got another season this is the one that i i really hope gets a finale season at some point yeah and the best part is that they only have three more books to adapt and considering that each season has adapted two to three of the books, they just need one more season, and they're done. Plenty doable. Plenty doable. And I think with all that done, we've been recording for over an hour and a half. Lord knows how much this is going to come out to. That concludes 
our Full Metal Panic retrospective. And honestly, I owe a lot to Full Metal Panic, because it was the anime that really got me looking into stuff beyond what was popular. I don't know what sort of fan I would be if I hadn't discovered Full Metal Panic, but between my reluctance to watch Full Metal Alchemist thanks to being turned off by its squealing fangirls, and just being attracted to Full Metal Panic based on its artwork, I don't know where I would be without this show. This and Interstellar 4-5 was what really turned me into the elitist anime shitlord that I am now. And even if the first series has its flaws, it is still plenty enjoyable to watch today, and still a great series. Fumofu is still laugh-out-loud funny. Second Raid is... Even though we kind of ragged on it, it's still enjoyable in its own way. But Invisible Victory is the beginning of a magnum opus that we hope becomes a fully finished symphony. Absolutely. It goes to show just not everything needs to be a masterpiece to be remembered. Yeah. Unless it's Legend of the Galactic Heroes. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, come at me on that one. All, all the same right here. Like, I'm always grateful that I came across this show when I did. Like, it was just something that I I was uh, just looking for anything to watch at that point because I was still finding my way around uh, fandom at the time. But I'm glad that I uh, got a hold of this one. And, you know, <laughs> 15 plus years on, you know, I'm still hoping uh, for good news from the uh, from this series and i hope that we do get a proper uh, conclusion here for this uh, in the coming years and whether it's whether it's as a uh, full-fledged season or or some other way that they can make it happen i just want to see it i just want to see it finish because there's meat on this bone here and i think that they could really uh, finish it out strong with uh, the right uh, adaptation i just hope they don't relegate it to an audio drama <laughs> I don't want this to be another Gaia Gear, even though from what I've heard, Gaia Gear is great. But, uh, alright, I think that's going to do it for us this week. And honestly, if you haven't checked out Full Metal Panic yet, if you've managed to get through this retrospective, even if you had no problems with us spoiling everything, by all means, watch Full Metal Panic. It is a phenomenal series, it's got comedy, it's got action, it's got drama, and it all feels cohesive, and the story is just so great, the suspense is just, oh, oh man, I'm just, I, I, I got, I got chill bumps talking about it, but I think that will do it for our Full Metal Panic retrospective, finally. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a like and subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Podbean, anywhere you get your podcasts from. And please follow us on social media at facebook.com slash show. And I am show on Twitter as well, where I post about everything from anime, hockey, wrestling, and Thomas the Tank Engine, of all things. But for next time, after such an intense series... I want to relax and laugh a little. And it just so happens that Shoji Gato, comedic genius that he is, wrote a fairly popular and somewhat well-known comedy series. So next time on the Otaku Nate Show, 
we're going to get on the bus and punch our ticket to a Magi Brilliant Park. And don't worry, we will cover Shoji Gato's other works on this show as well. Both Hyoka and Copcraft will have their day too. But for now, I just want to sit back, relax, watch Amabri, and just reflect on Fullmetal Panic and how well it holds up. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. This is Tim the Otaku Jack. And this is Jordan. And we're signing off and saying, not a problem. Keep